We have the privilege, and it really is a privilege to um, read and then to uh, sit under the Word of God. And I do pray that it'll build your hearts up, that you leave here more in love uh, with Jesus, and that even if you have to go through hard seasons in life where you suffer on account of your own sin, that you'll remember that God is treating you as a daughter and as a son and his ultimate heart there is, is not to condemn you. It's to conform you to the image of Jesus. And he is good enough to even use discipline and hard consequences in the present to make us more like him. And that's what we're going to see in this text this morning. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to pick up where we left off last week. And so last week, as a refresher, in case you weren't here, uh, Jacob's, uh, Jacob and Rebecca stole the final blessing that Isaac, against what God had already commanded, uh, that the blessing should go to Jacob, uh, Isaac's intent was to bless Esau instead in private. And Rebekah gets to action and they put together this scheme to deceive and to steal uh, the blessing. And I made a case to you that, that God does, he, he makes masterpieces after our messes using his divine providence. And what we're reading this morning is the aftermath. And I almost called the sermon the aftermath, but that wouldn't quite make sense. <laughs> and so uh, I've entitled it Enduring Seasons in Life when we suffer on, um, for things that we've done, the consequences of our own sins. How do we endure those seasons? This is God's word, Genesis 27, starting at verse 41. Now, Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, the days of mourning for my father are approaching, and then I will kill my brother Jacob. But the words of Esau, her older son, were told to Rebekah. So she sent and called Jacob, her younger son, and said to him, behold, your brother Esau comforts himself about you by planning to kill you. Now, therefore, my son, obey my voice. Arise and flee to Laban, my brother in Haran, and stay with him a while until your brother's fury turns away, until your brother's anger turns away from you, and he forgets what you have done to him. Then I will send and bring you from there. Why should I be bereft of you both in one day? Then Rebekah said to Isaac, I loathe my life because of these Hittite women. If Jacob marries one of the Hittite women like these, one of the women of the land, what good will my life be to me? Then Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and directed him. You must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. Arise, go to Padan Aram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and take as your wife from, one, from there one of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. God Almighty or El Shaddai bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you that you may become a company of peoples. May he give the blessing of Abraham to you and to your offspring with you that you may take possession of the land of your sojournings that God gave to Abraham. Thus Isaac sent Jacob away and he went to Padan Aram to Laban, the son of Bethuel, the Aramean, the brother of Rebekah, Jacob's and Esau's mother. Now Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him away to Badan Aram to take a wife from there. And that he, as he blessed him, he directed him, you must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. 
and that Jacob had obeyed his father and his mother and had gone to Badan Aram. And so when Esau saw that the Canaanite women did not please Isaac, his father, Esau went to Ishmael and took as his wife, besides the wives he already had, Mahalah, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of Nebaioth. Amen. Let's pray, saints. Dear Lord, we uh, love you and we thank you that you love us and you have loved us in Jesus. And we thank you that you save us and then you sanctify us. You sanctify us in your truth. Lord, your word is truth. And so use this ancient story, which is true, uh, to teach us eternal truths about you and about us and about discipline and about your grace. May we leave your Lord uh, more holy. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So in December of 2004, one of the most deadliest earthquakes in modern history occurred on the coast of Indonesia. It was a seismic event that uh, registered 9.3 on the Richter scale, which is awfully high. The fault length um, was longer than the state of California. The earthquake lasted almost 10 minutes. It caused our planet to vibrate a half of an inch. It triggered earthquakes as far as Alaska. However, the aftermath was even more dangerous than the earthquake. Five hours after the earthquake, a tsunami reached Australia. Seven hours after the earthquake, a tsunami reached the Arabian Peninsula. Eleven hours after the earthquake, a tsunami hit South Africa. The total energy of the tsunamis was equivalent to five megatons. That's twice the amount of explosive energy used in all of World War II. The aftershocks continued for almost four months. When the dust settled in the aftermath of the earthquake, 228,000 people died across 14 different countries. The ruinous incident, the earthquake was hard, but the aftermath was even more. I think that's a helpful way to think about our passage this morning. Last week, an earthquake ran through the first family with Rebecca and Jacob stealing the birthright. And what we're dealing with this morning really is the aftermath. This is, these are the consequences after that ruinous event. And I've intentionally not read where we're going next week when Jacob gets this dream and all heaven opens up and he sees angels ascending and descending. And he says, surely God is in this place. The reason I'm holding that at bay and not lumping that in this morning is because there is a tendency in our lives that when the hard things happen, when we lie and deceive and go against one another, we instantly fly over the consequences of that behavior and we go straight to the blessing, I see God. And yet what the author of Genesis wants us to do is before you get this grand appearing of God, when uh, Jacob is on the run, we got to slow down and see 
that the stuff they did last week impacted them. It impacted their family. It impacted the way brothers relate to brother and and husband relates to husband and mother relates to son, that there is an aftermath of destruction on account of their sin. Last week, we, we championed that God turns our messes into masterpieces. He does that. He sovereignly brings about his will, even in spite of our sin. And at the same time, God will allow us to endure the earthly consequences of our actions. And so this is a warning. It's to make us more holy. It's to give us clarity if we're in one of those seasons and the waves of the consequences of things that we've done are crashing upon us. But it's also an encouragement because what you see here is that this cannot will not ever be utter condemnation. This is God as a father allowing the consequences of what we do to come upon us. And it comes from a heart of love. And his heart is to use even the sin in our lives to make us more like Jesus. And so if that's you this morning, if you're in a season where You can look back on things that you've done to betray trust, to ruin your family, to lose your job. If if you're here, this is good news. And so I want us to leave here encouraged, but to do that, we first have to understand. I got two points today, okay? The aftermath and the after aftermath, right? We're going to look at what happens when they sin in the aftermath and they're enduring the consequences of their sin. That's a real thing, but we can't stay there. I think you even see the after aftermath where God's grace shows up. And so the consequences for their sin comes in the aftermath In the after aftermath, grace shows up. God shows up. Healing shows up. Mending shows up. And it's important that that if you're in that season, that you see both, right? And so let's look at the aftermath, the consequences of their sins. And so it's it's fitting to start with Esau. So notice what what the text says in verse 41. It's right after Esau gets the anti-blessing, he realizes that he's been deceived. Notice what it says, now, and, and that's a clue. It's saying now, after all of this happened, this is the impact that it had on Esau. It says, now, after these things, Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And notice the second thing Esau said to himself, or in the Hebrew, he said in his own heart or to his own heart. So this wasn't something that Esau went and and, and told everybody. No, he began to internalize this and to keep this to himself. And then notice what Rebecca says. Rebecca says that your brother Esau comforts himself about you by planning to kill you. Now take this in. Esau hates Jacob now. More than that, he's getting comfort in in the plan to execute him. Esau's plan is to pull a cane, right? On Abel. This is a repetition of that same theme where brother will want to go against brother 
And I get this image of him comforting himself. Like I get this image of him in the weight room, like lifting weights. And he got a picture of Jacob on the wall. His motivation for getting strong is Jacob. I get an image of him in his man cave or in his shed, sharpening his sword or sharpening his arrows. And he slings one across the room and he smiles saying, I can't wait to smoke this fool, right? That's kind of the image I get. He's comforting himself in his plan to take his brother's life. This is a consequence of what they've done. But it doesn't seem that he's only turning to rage for comfort. We're also told in verse six through nine that Esau goes and marries. And so he takes another wife. Now, some might read this positively, that his father says, hey, uh, Jacob, I don't want you to marry Hittite women. By the way, your brother got two of them. Don't you do what he do he's done. And so uh, Esau hears that. He says, okay, well, maybe I can appease mom and dad by marrying a non-Hittite. That's one way to read it, but I don't think that's how we're supposed to read it because of who he marries. He marries Ishmael's daughter. And you got to know who Ishmael is with respect to Isaac. God promised Abraham that through you, the world will be blessed. He promised Sarah, you too will have children. Abraham, in his impatience, slept with Hagar and they birthed uh, Ishmael. Well, later, God did visit Sarah and she birthed Isaac. And God comes to Sarah and Abraham says, through Isaac is the promise. And so as Isaac grows up, Ishmael grows up and Ishmael begins to bully and taunt uh, Isaac. And when Sarah sees it, Sarah says, send that slave woman and that son of yours away. And Abraham is worried. And God tells him, listen to her. But here's what God told him about the slave woman, Hagar, and her son, Ishmael. He says, the promise is coming through Isaac, but I will make a nation of the slave woman because he is your offspring. Later, God appeared to Hagar and says, lift up the boy to me. I will make him a great nation. And God was with that boy and he grew up. He lived in the wilderness of Paran and his mother took a wife for him from Egypt. And so it reads as if, if Esau can't get the blessing through Abraham's younger son, Isaac, let me start an alliance with Abraham's older son. You see what's happening? And Rebecca, being Rebecca, intercepts the plan again, y'all. She heard when Isaac wanted to bless Esau, and she went into action. And now she goes into action again. And the language here is strange. It says that Esau said to himself in verse 41, but then look at verse 42. But the words of Esau, her older son, were told to Rebekah. It's not like he went out and, and told the world. In fact, when you read this narrative, when she put the plan in play, it reads as if Isaac didn't even know what was happening. And Jacob around here thinking everything kosher and his mama has to grab him and say, boy, he about to try to take your life. You better run. And so it reads as if the men in the family had no idea what Esau was about to do. But Rebecca did. 
How does she find out? I doubt that Esau said, Mama, I'm going to kill your favorite son. I doubt he did that. Maybe a servant overheard it and told her. Maybe God who spoke to her when she was pregnant with those boys before they were born. Maybe God alerts her. Maybe this is motherly intuition. We don't know. What we do know is Esau didn't broadcast it. And somehow she hears about it. And she sets a plan into action. And so notice her plan, y'all. It is really genius. She does not go to Isaac and say, hey, Esau's trying to kill Jacob. You better step up, man up and do something and stop it. She doesn't go to Esau and say, Esau, you better not do that. She doesn't do that. She goes to Jacob, tells him, you got to leave. You have to go to my family. And I know kids, it's, if you look at it, she's actually telling Jacob to go to her brother's house and to marry one of his cousins. And that's kind of icky, right? Well, in Leviticus 18, that's when God says, don't do that no more. Right? <laughs> so it seems like it's kind of allowed right here. I don't know. But that's the plan. But notice how she goes to Isaac. She doesn't tell Isaac. N notice her angle. Look at what she says. She's, look at verse 46. So she's just told Jacob, you got to go away. But that's not what she tells Isaac. She comes to Isaac and says, I loathe my life because of these Hittite women. If Jacob marries one of these Hittite women like these, one of these women of the land, what good will my life be? And that's a wordplay on what we already heard in, in, I mean, in Genesis 26, 34. When Esau was 40 years old, he took Judith, his wife, and bereaved the Hittite to be his wife, and Basemath, the daughter of Elon, and they made life bitter, right? So we already know that the bitter women that she's talking about are the two wives that are of Hittite origin that Esau is already married to. And so she comes to Isaac and says, hey, if Jacob does the same thing that Esau did, what point is there to live? And this is so smooth, y'all. Let me tell you why. For all of Isaac's sinful tendencies that we've looked at, she understands that he is holy in these two areas. He's a one-woman man. He values marriage. He didn't have a concubine when his wife couldn't conceive. He prayed and waited on the Lord. And he knew the value of not marrying a woman of the land who did not believe in his God because his daddy told him that. And his daddy sent a servant on a mission to go get Rebecca to bring Rebecca back to him. And so she appeals to that. I know this is going to carry some weight with Isaac. And then look what Isaac does. Isaac's like, oh, yeah, baby, that's a great idea. Look at verse chapter 28. Then Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and directed him. You must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. Arise, go to Badan Aram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father. Take as your wife from one of there, the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. God Almighty bless you. You see what? You see what happened? She, he just executed the idea that she planted in his head. And what happens to Isaac? He's deceived again. And what happens to Jacob? He's sent away. And that's important because if you look at the anti-blessing that Esau got, 
Esau was told, away from the fatness of the earth you shall dwell, away from the dew of heaven and on high. And in an ironic turn of events, who was the one that's getting sent away? It's not Esau, it's Jacob. Family, do y'all see the aftermath of their conniving and sinning? Their family is blown up. Rebecca, we don't think, will ever see Jacob again. She dies before she summons him back. Jacob is on the run. Isaac loses his youngest son. Esau is estranged from his brother. They shared the womb together. And the family is blown up. And here's what you can't miss. This is the fallout of their sin. It's as if God is saying, if you are a deceiver, watch out, you will be deceived. And that's what Genesis is about. That this same Jacob who takes and deceives is going to be on the receiving end of deception. When his own sons do the same thing to him. The same Jacob who takes and deceives is going to be deceived by Laban. Oh, I know you love Rachel. Well, I'm going to give you Leah. I'm going to get you back, you deceiver. You see what's happening in the book? Rebecca, if you want to put your hand in the providence of God and control things yourself, it'll come back on you. And this sounds a little like Jesus. Y'all remember when Jesus told the disciples when they pulled the sword out when he was about to go to the cross? He says, if you live by that, you're going to die by that. It's what Jesus told Paul. Paul, why do you persecute me? Why do you persecute me? And Jesus did not say there is no persecution. He says, I'm going to show you how much you're going to suffer. You, you, you hear that? What about the Proverbs? They say things like, if you gain your wealth unjustly, it will be taken from you. If you won't work and cross your hands and don't go to work, poverty will come back upon you. If you wink the eye and make side deals and use your tongue to tear down people, be careful. Calamity is coming back upon you. It's what the, the proverb says. Can you carry a fire next to your chest and not be burned? It says, so it is with a man or woman who sleeps with another man's spouse. Do you see what the Bible is saying? There are real earthly hurtful consequences for us when we persist in our rebellion. And haven't you experienced them in your own life, if you're honest? Maybe you idolize stuff and spending. And all of a sudden you have to have all those new cars and new clothes and an extended mortgage. And then the pile of debt, it's just there. Or maybe you engaged in premarital sex 
and you're five years into your marriage and the consequences still haunt you. Or maybe you give your time and affection to pornography or scrolling and your spiritual life is anemic. You see how that happens? I'm telling you, I've been there. And it's hard. And it's painful. Because we bought into the lie thinking that we can just kind of do whatever. And there's grace. And Jesus is going to shield me from all earthly consequences. And we use that as a license to indulge in and pursue sin. And, and God is saying, I love you too much to do that. And so he's letting them feel and ache and see the brokenness that they caused. And when those moments come, I'm telling you where our heart goes. It's, it's God, do you still love me? Why does this hurt so much? Will the sunshine come? Is this judgment? Is this condemnation? Can it be fixed? Is there hope? And our hearts ache and our worlds ache and our minds ache and our bodies ache because we're overwhelmed with sorrow. And there's some good news here. It can't be condemnation. God is treating you like a father or a daughter. You see, what would scare me and what should scare you is if you can live in sin and there are no consequences. That's scary. But because God is a good father, he's kind. He brings things that we do in the darkness into light. He allows us to be exposed. He allows us to feel and to ache. And it's a good kind of pain. Which moves us to the second point. How do you endure? You have to see the after aftermath. You got to step out of what you feel and see right now and, and what you, you experience right now and step back and say, Lord, I don't want to trust my feelings. I don't want to trust what I see. I want to trust you and what I know about your character and your word and your commitment to me in Jesus. Help me to see what I'm going through right now in, a, in the grand stage of redemption. And here's what you see in the after aftermath. There is a certainty of God's grace. He's coming. He's with you in it. He's going to fix it, and it may, he may not fix it like you think he ought to fix it, but he is going to attend to you. He is going to mend you. And we see it in the text, and I want to show you there. So, I grew up, and I went to Davis, what is now Obama, and it's on Congress Street, and I still remember my first assembly. And they called us into the assembly and there was a zookeeper there. And this cat came in there with a whole bunch of animals and he just kind of laid them out in their cages on the stage. And like, we were like geeked, a zookeeper's here. And he pulls out, he pulled out these two snakes. 
and they were red and black and yellow. And they looked identical. They looked the same, same color scheme. And he says, one of these, if they bite you, it might kill you. And this other one looks like it can kill you, but you can pet this one. And he gave us this phrase to remember. Red touch yellow, kill a fella. Red touch black, good for Jack. In other words, if the color pattern is red touching black, you can touch it and it, and it, might, it might bite you, but it is not venomous. It, it, it's not going to kill you. They look alike, but they're not alike. And if you are enduring hardship, I'm here to tell you, it might look like judgment. It's not judgment. Some of you've had ACL repairs like me and knees replaced. And here's what you know, like the surgery is good. They put you on the good stuff. You knocked out. You don't feel nothing. And, you, and then the rehab starts. And the person who rehabbed me, her name was Meredith. And I hated to go see Meredith. Because every time I went to go see Meredith, I would have like two or three little tears that would just come down my eye. And Meredith would make me sit up and she would put her uh, forearm on my shin and she was pushing. I'm like, it hurts. Like, it hurts. You got to stop. And she says, this is the good kind of hurt. I'm giving you your range of motion back. If you don't ache, you will never have your range of motion. This is not a pain to hurt you. This is a pain to heal you. And when you are enduring the consequences of sin from the loving hand of God, you know what God tells you? This is not to ultimately harm you. It's the good pain that I'm using to heal you, to give you full range of holiness. Now, we see this in the text and you see it. Just just look at the beginning of chapter 28. <laughs> then Isaac called Jacob and blessed him. And directed him, do not take a wife from the Canaanite women. Go marry one of your, your cousins. Verse 3, El Shaddai, God Almighty, he will bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you that you may be a company of peoples. And may he give the blessing of Abraham to you and to your offspring after you that you may have the land. This is the same Isaac that just shook violently. In verse 33 of 27, when his son deceived him, this is the same Jacob who a few verses earlier just dressed up like his brother to steal. And in a few verses, his own daddy, who he sinned against, is now putting his hand on him and saying, you're blessed. Don't you see the gospel there? You have a daddy in heaven that we sin against and we endure consequences. And because of Jesus, he puts his hand back on you. And he says, I'm going to bless you. I'm committed to, to blessing you. And what you see is that, 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 that Jacob is homeless for a season. He is wifeless for a season. He is childless for a season. And El Shaddai shows up and changes all of that. 
In the next chapter, he gets married. He loses a family and he gets a new family. He doesn't have security and provision. And then God sends him to Laban and Jacob walks out 20 years later and he's restored. He's not the only one who experiences God's blessing. Esau does. In my mind, I read in scripture, Jacob, I've loved Esau. I've hated And I make the mistake to think that God's hatred for Esau is like Esau's hatred for Jacob. That's a wordplay there, right? And I imagine that God is comforting himself, ready to pounce on Esau and destroy him. That God is wetting his sword. I can't wait till he dies because I'm going to smoke him in the hell, right? That ain't what you read in the Bible, though. The next time Jacob and Esau meet in Genesis 33, Esau got 400 men with him. And Esau ran and fell on his neck and kissed Jacob and they wept. And Jacob tries to give Esau gifts and Esau said, buddy, we good over here. We eating. We've been being provided for. And then if you turn to Deuteronomy chapter two, verses four through six, God tells Israel as they're passing around in the wilderness, he says, you're about to pass through the territory of your brothers, the people of Esau who live in Seir, and they will be afraid of you. He says, be careful. Do not contend with them, for I will not give you any of their land, not so much as for the sole of your foot to tread on, because I've given this land to Esau as a possession. Whoa. God tells Israel, you better not take their land. Why? Because I'm gracious to more than just you. And what about Rebecca? We don't hear any more of her in the Bible, in this book. But we get a little clue back in Genesis 24. A prophecy was made over her when she departed Our sister, may you become thousands of ten thousands and may your offspring possess the gate of those who hate them. And you know what? That was starting to happen. Jacob going to go and marry Rachel and Leah. And they're going to have some chilling. That's going to become the 12 tribes of Israel. That when you get to the book of Exodus, they ain't a small clan anymore. And so it's as if God is saying to Rebecca, you messed up, but I'm going to fix it. I'm going to keep my promises to you. And what about Isaac? He'll live another 20 years. And if you turn to Genesis 35, it says Jacob returned home to Mamre where Isaac was. Isaac breathed his last and his sons Esau and Jacob laid him to rest. I imagine that the last thing Isaac saw was his two sons right there. But it gets better than this. You see, from now on, God identifies himself. I'm the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. And Jesus picks up on this in Matthew 22. He was arguing or disputing with people who denied the resurrection. And Jesus says to them, have you not read what your God says? 
I am the God of Isaac. I am the God of Abraham. I am the God of Jacob. And Jesus says he's not the God of the dead, but the living. Now notice what God had never said in the Old Testament. I was the God of Abraham. I was the God of Isaac. I was the God of Jacob. He says, no, I am, which means right now, where is Isaac? He's around the throne of God. He's buried and he is awaiting his glorified body at the return of Christ. And God has fixed it and has fixed him. He can sin no more. He can lie no more. He doesn't have partiality between sons anymore. He beholds God in his splendor and beauty. And so God fixes it both in this life and then sometimes if we leave here and things are undone, God says, it's cool. You're going to be with me. I'm going to fix it all anyway. Y'all catch the graciousness of God here? Now here's, I'm going to close with this. Every single person in this family, whether common grace or saving grace, God relents. God mends. The same Jacob who was a thief, when he meets Esau, he wants to give. The same Esau who wants to kill Jacob, he runs and wept. The same Jacob who's running from his brother, when he sees Esau, he says, come and hug me. In you, I see the face of God. Jacob is more holy, and at the least, Esau is less vile, because God is gracious. Here's a closing remark. What if I told you that this is true for you today? That when you endure the hard things in life, can you believe that this comes from the hand of a God who loves you? It's not condemnation. There is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Jesus has died and has satisfied all of God's wrath in his once and for all offering of himself on a tree. All murder, all mayhem, all adultery, all abuse, all lying, all stealing, all killing. If you are in Christ, it has been atoned for. And when you bear the earthly consequences for our ways, God says, I'm treating you like a daughter and a son. We all had earthly parents who disciplined us for a season and we respect them for it. If we are not disciplined, we are illegitimate bastard children. But God, because of his great love for you, will use discipline not to harm you, but to heal you and to conform you to the likeness of Jesus. This is how we endure the hard moments, by coming face to face with our own role and our own sin, and by looking up. God, you're kind and you're good, and you're gonna fix me, and you're fixing it, that your name will be praised. Let's pray. The Lord, your word is rich and beautiful and good.
Make us like Jesus, even if you have to use bitter circumstances to do so. We love you and we thank you that we are so secure in your love for us. And we rest there. In Jesus' name, amen.